Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. Today, though, we are going to continue a sermon series that we began uh, several uh, weeks ago, a couple months ago, actually. We've taken the last three weeks off from teaching the sermon series as we've been meeting in person at the retreat. Uh, we have fallen, we fell onto the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Three, uh, three holy days holy days that uh, a lot of Christians aren't even aware of and are, aren't even aware of the significance that they hold for uh, the believer. So uh, we had to, of course, hit pause on the sermon series to cover those special days, but we are going to do our best to finish up our Blessed Hope sermon series this morning. So our Blessed Hope, this is part six of our study as we've studied through uh, Titus and 1 Timothy. So open up your Bibles with me, <clears throat> if you would, to 1 Timothy and we're going to begin in chapter 5 today, okay? So turn those Bible pages. Let me hear it, all right? You know, that's there's no sweeter sound than the turning of Bible pages. It just speaks peace to any room uh, that it's in, that noise, I'll tell you what. So with that said, let me jump in here, guys, and give you a little bit of a series recap, because even if you've been engaged in the sermon series, <clears throat> it's been three weeks. So let me give you a bit of a recap. Paul the Apostle Paul is traveling throughout the Mediterranean region, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ, planting churches, encouraging churches, and he's got a couple guys with him. He's got Titus and he's got Timothy with him. Paul left two young men to lead churches in cities or regions <clears throat> that were known for their rebellion, known for their rebellion uh, to morality. They were known for their paganism. They were known for their depravity. Uh, uh, Titus was left on uh, the island of liars in Crete, and uh, Timothy was left with the pagans of Ephesus. So liars and pagans, these two young men left to lead church bodies, church families, fellowships, they're left with liars and pagans. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds familiar uh, to many of us. We're studying these letters at this particular time. Uh, it's not coincidental. We're studying these letters due to the striking similarity of, of circumstances that we find ourselves in today. Striking similarities that we find ourselves in today. There were two basic issues facing the believers of Ephesus, and they are the same two issues that are facing us today. Creed versus conduct. In other words, what is your inner man or woman or conscience say? What do you believe? Your creed. What is your ethos, your creed versus your conduct? In other words, what you do. What you believe versus what you do. Do you mean what you say and say what you mean, right? Do you, uh, uh, do, you do what you say you're going to do uh, and do what you believe is right at the same time? Let your yes be yes and your no be no, in other words, right? It's a, in a culture in a culture that was known for worshiping at the demon altar of lust, Ephesus, lying to the extent that one believes their own deception, Crete, and ultimately calling what is evil good and what is good evil, there was a church in that climate, in that atmosphere. There was a church, Life Story Church, right? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the Church of Ephesus. This letter isn't just a message full of well-intended advice. No, this letter is marching orders from a colonel in God's army to a commander. So a letter from a colonel to a commander, if you can imagine, in the Lord's army. Okay? Uh, can I see that, <clears throat> that uh, uh, first graphic, Evangeline? Thank you. Marching orders. This is where we ended, if you remember <clears throat> the last message. This is you. Paul is giving marching orders. Creed versus conduct. They are to be of the faith. They are to be motivated by love. This is all stuff that we have covered so far in, this, uh, in Timothy. 
They're, uh, they're to be a sound in doctrine. They are to be proclaimers of the gospel, and they are to be defenders of the faith. Now, Paul has already uh, outlined these for us. Can I see that next graphic? He's outlined these uh, uh, issues and these commands for us. Can I see that graphic? Uh, these are responsibilities of the local church. To teach sound doctrine, to proclaim the gospel, and to defend the faith. So ask yourself if you're watching this and you're not a Life Story Church member already, does my church do these things? Because it's imperative that it does, okay? Paul emphasized two aspects of a spiritual officer as well. That they are to be of faith and they are to be motivated by love. Okay, get this now because love is key. Love is key, church. We know that. We hear it all the time, don't we, in our culture, especially in the, from the pulpits today. Love, 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 love. Love is key. But understand this as you look at those graphics at that outline there. It isn't the focus. It isn't the focus. Ambiguous love is the calling card of the apostate church today, unfortunately. Yet, do you know how many times love is mentioned in the book of Acts? I'll pause so you can answer. Zero. Zero times. That's because if you teach sound doctrine, if you proclaim the gospel and provide a defense of the faith to those looking on, guess what, church? Love will be demonstrated and love will be evident. You don't need to talk about love because you'll be doing it. And at the end of the day, love is something that you do, is it not? It is something that you do, not something that you say. As a matter of fact, love isn't even something you feel necessarily. And we do a great study on that, usually around Valentine's Day. But in any case, <clears throat> love is something that he did, that Jesus did. The lost and the struggling brother don't need to be made to feel better about their sin. Hear me now. They need sound doctrine to overcome their sin. The gospel for hope and love. Sound doctrine to overcome their sin and the gospel for hope and love. Don't just tell me that you love me, right? Show me that you love me, right? Don't just tell me that Jesus loves me. Show me that Jesus loves me. These are your marching orders, church. And what are you, church? I say church all the time, right? What? What are you by definition of the, uh, of the scripture? Can I see this list, this next graphic? This is you, church. Are you ready? I said before, this is you, your marching orders. This is you. This is really you, the church. A holy nation. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, emphasize a believer's common citizenship in heaven. You are, have a citizenship in heaven, which makes you a part of a holy nation, a kingdom. Revelation chapter 5 verse 10 emphasizes the believer's common submission to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You're, it's a kingdom. You have a citizenship in he heaven and you have a king, a priesthood as well. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5 emphasizes the privilege that all believers have of, of direct access to God. You're the vine. You have a common connection to the life of God to bear fruit. According to John 15, you are the temple now. Okay, built on a solid foundation of the apostles' doctrine with Jesus as the cornerstone, according to Paul in Ephesians 2. You're part of a body. You have a common life and dependence on your head, who is Jesus. We all do. We are part of the same body. We are an assembly, ecclesia, right? We have a common calling to be gathered into the eternal presence of God and to do so publicly. You are a flock. We have a common need to be led and fed by the great shepherd, according to Peter in 1 Peter 5. And guess what? This is my favorite one on the list, I think. We are a family now. Don't we say that all the time? Life story, church, family. That emphasizes intimacy, care, openness and love with one another. First Timothy makes that clear. That's who you are, church, a family. And I got to tell you, if you're watching this and you're missing that peace in your life, maybe you're somebody who has, a, has an ember of faith in your heart, but it needs to be blown into full flame, come join with us. Come meet with us. Come be a part of the Life Story Church family. Or if you're watching this online and you're somebody who has just fallen into the habit of uh, maybe you're lucky to even turn on a preacher on Sunday morning, but you're not going to church. You're not engaging the body of, the, of Christ and you don't truly have what you would call is a family, which means <clears throat> when we hurt 
<laughs> we have others that hurt with us. When you hurt, you have somebody you can call to bring aid, to bring encouragement. If you don't have a church family, I, you need one. You are designed and made to have one. Okay, so come visit us at Life Story Church if you haven't already, if you don't have that. Okay, but this definition of who the church is that we just went over is perfectly highlighted by Jesus in John chapter 13, verse 34 through 35. Let me read that to you. He says this. He says, a new command, a new command I give to you. New there is interesting. That word in the Greek is kainos. It means new in quality. It means, get this, get this, hear me now, radically different. It's not the normal word for new, which is neos, which means the new model or new in time, new down the uh, chain, right? It's the new car. No, it's this means radically different, a new commandment. In other words, Jesus is saying, a radically different command I give to you, that you love one another. Look at this, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And guess what word he's using there? Agape, which means an unconditional love. It means I don't love because I get something out of the deal. Okay? Conditional love is a dime a dozen, but an agape love that says, I love you even though I get nothing out of this relationship. I still love you. But guess what? When we love people with that kind of love that we're only capable, capable of giving, if Christ enables us to give, when we do that, we do get so much, don't we? Verse 35, by this all will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the signature of the body of Christ. Is your church known for that? Oh man, Life Story Church is known for that, aren't we? I love you guys. I really do. The church in Ephesus though, the church in Ephesus was a spiritual family as we are. And that's why I wanted to highlight all of this before we even get started. They were a spiritual family just like we are, okay? And guess what? Families have issues, don't they? Ephesus had a few issues. Let's take a look at them. Here are some family issues that Ephesus had. Sinning members had abandoned truth and godliness. Some had shipwrecked their faith. We, all of this we've already studied. Some women had abandoned their proper role and were trying to usurp the function of men. Some men were aspiring to leadership without adequate qualifications. We, have we ever seen that happen in the churches that we've gone to over the years? Of course, my goodness. That's all too common in the church today, uh, sadly, uh, as was the previous uh, one on the list. Some were teaching demonic false doctrines. Boy, is that on the rise in the church today? More than ever, if you ask me. Demonic teachings, false doctrines, uh, mysticism bleeding into the good doctrine in the church, goodness. Impure lives were evident among some of the older widows and some of the younger, and we'll get to that here in just a moment. Ephesus was, in other words, Ephesus was not an easy place to minister. But where is an easy place to minister, right? Where is? Goodness. So understandably, this letter is leaning hard into discipline. It's leaning hard into discipline. Something that we need badly, badly in the church today, especially at this point in history which I believe we're living in the time that the Bible speaks more about than any other period of time in, in, in throughout the end time period. I believe we are soon to see Jesus Christ return. So how important is it that when he returns, he finds the church that he's instructed us to be? Amen? So discipline, though. Paul's going to lean hard into discipline. Let me give you something uh, on that before we jump into the text. This is discipline. In the Old Testament, you'll find 2 Samuel, Job, Ezekiel. We find that old, the Old Testament tells us that discipline leads to understanding. It leads to knowledge. Proverbs is so great. It leads to wisdom. It leads to honor. Discipline, discipline leads to a happy life. You know, some of the most unhappy people that I have ever known and or counseled, the biggest thing that they struggle with in their life is discipline. Discipline leads to understanding, to knowledge, to wisdom, to honor. This is the Word of God. This isn't Pastor Chad here, right? Discipline leads to a happy life. Are you miserable? You need some discipline. A teaspoon of discipline, right? Maybe. The New Testament, at the same time, uh, it references discipline many times. Uh, the gist of it is, is that the purpose of discipline is to save the offender. 
It's not to punish you for the sake of punishment, or it's not even punishment for that matter. The word discipline, to, to uh, 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 chastise, that's in, in, in the Greek, that's the word uh, pedio, which means to train as one trains a child. So the purpose is to save the sinner. Sin needs to be dealt with because it disrupts what? Guess what does it disrupt? It disrupts intimacy in the family. Let me ask you guys a question. In your families, in your extended families, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, everybody, your family, right? Your Thanksgiving family, right? In that family, when there is sin and it runs amok and it's left unchecked, what does it disrupt among you? Intimacy. It causes issues of trust, does it not? It causes heartbreak. It causes disappointment. So sin needs to be dealt with. Otherwise, otherwise it disrupts this precious intimacy of the family and our spiritual family. So with all of that in mind, let's read 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Are you ready? Let's go. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women, verse 2, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. This uh, harkens to, back to uh, the Ten Commandments, doesn't it? Honor thy father and thy mother. Verse 3. Let's keep going. I want to get through uh, this today. Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, in other words, that word in the Greek there for grandchildren, in, other, in the King James, that, that translation says nephew, but there's, they don't have as big a vocabulary in the Greek, so it just means descendants. So has children or grandchildren, that works just fine, but if you're reading in the King James, that might be confusing. Let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow, there it says really a widow again, as if there were some pretenders in the church or there were some, there were some different circumstances, perhaps uh, 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 you know how there can be different uh, uh, scenarios. Uh, was, she, was she divorced or left? Did her husband really die? That kind of stuff. So uh, a little conjecture in there. Who is really a widow and left alone. Now, verse 5. Now, she who is really a widow and left alone, basically what this saying, whatever the case is, she is without human support within the body. Okay? So she who is left alone, she trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Okay, verse 6. But she who lives in pleasure, in pleasure is dead while she lives. These are, remember, discipline here. So, and these, and these things command that they be blameless. You know, as we'll come to find... Blameless, what does that mean? As we'll come to find, not an idle gossip. Okay? See, what's happening in the church here is some of the widows, Paul is giving them instruction, and he's also giving instruction to uh, uh, the family members to take care of her. Take care of your mother. For all the, everything that she did for you, you need to take care of her. Okay? That's basically, because if you don't, then the burden will fall on the church, and it doesn't need to fall on the church if, if she's got kids, if she's got family to help take care of her. Okay, What was happening is some widows, younger widows in particular, were uh, getting into relationships and marrying uh, pagan men, remarrying, and but marrying outside of the church so they could be taken care of. And, and Paul's saying, no, we, you've got family. You don't need to do that because what happens when you marry outside of the church, outside of the family, uh, you, marry, you marry into paganism, what happens to your faith? Your faith is, is harmed and uh, sometimes eroded down to nothing. So, uh, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Or in the King James uh, Version, it says infidel, a familiar word. In, in, in Islam to us, right? So, an infill, that's strong. That is a strong rebuking there, church. This is the Apostle Paul. This isn't, this isn't just anybody who makes a, making a flippant comment here about, oh, you better take care of your family, better work, better be a worker, better have a job. This is serious stuff here. Don't let this moment pass without serious consideration, all right? Are you listening, men? Men, listen here. 
This isn't a passing comment from a random church member. This is Paul. You have to take care of your family. It is your responsibility. No excuses. If you're too good for whatever work uh, you can find, that says something about you here. Okay? That says something about you here. Better to have work that you think is beneath you Better to have work that you think is beneath you and feed your family than to let those who depend on you suffer. If the Holy Spirit is within you, guess what? He says, work. It is the way, right? I've been watching too much Mandalorian. It is the way. Work, okay? It is the way. We need to work. Take care of our families, men, okay? Uh, too often we see that, that spirit of... Uh, laziness grip men and, and their families suffer it's, it shouldn't be so it shouldn't be so Jesus uh, the Holy Spirit through Paul says if anyone does not provide for his own especially for those of his household he has denied the faith Wow that's strong take that to heart don't let that moment just pass you by verse 9 let's keep reading do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. What, that's an interesting saying there, the, into the number. That is actually used for the enrollment of soldiers. Don't let women under 60 be uh, uh, used, for the enroll, used for the enrollment of soldiers. Interesting. Uh, what are they using the women for, the soldiers, and so on and so forth. Okay, And not unless she has been the wife of one man. Verse 10. Well reported for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good works. Okay, uh, this is harkens back to Tabitha. Tabitha in Acts chapter nine. Remember, Tabitha was raised from the dead because she was such a good woman in all of these different ways. Peter, uh, Peter raised Tabitha from the dead for these deeds. Okay, Verse 11, But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry. We just talked about this briefly. The, they desire to marry having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. Why? Because they married a pagan man because they wanted to be taken care of. And besides, they learn to be idle. There is a definite connection, biblically, church, between idleness and sin. Right? What are they, what's the old saying? Uh, idle hands is the devil's playground, something like that. It's, there's a definite biblical connection between idleness and sin. Okay? And besides, they learn to be idle, it says, wandering about from house to house. And not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies. We don't know anybody like that, do we? No. Never. Saying things which they ought not. Verse 14. You don't know anybody like that. Certainly not. Verse 14. Therefore, I desire that the younger widow marry, bear children, and manage the house. In other words, be a Proverbs 31 woman, right? Proverbs 31, which obviously talks about my wife, right? So, uh, give no opportunity. Give no opportunity. No opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. This is huge, verse 14 here, okay? This is huge. Give the enemy no opportunity to speak reproachfully about you. All right? The, the cool thing about this phrase is that that word there, opportunity, in the Greek, by definition, what it means is a platform, a platform from which to launch an assault. It's a military word. Don't give the enemy a platform by which to launch an assault. So oftentimes in life, we are suffering from attacks of the enemy, and we're needing prayer, and we're fighting, and we're worn out from all these attacks he's bringing, but yet we are giving him the very platform by which he can attack us. And we need to, and that's what Paul's saying here, don't give him the opportunity, okay? Verse 15, for some have already turned aside after Satan. We're speaking here still about the women who are turning away from the faith for the sake of a man. Ladies, no man is worth it. <laughs> Let me tell you this, especially young ladies. No man is worth it to turn away from the faith for the sake of a man whose desires, if you're all worked up and infatuated, but he's not a believer, no man is worth turning away from your faith for that. Mm. 
Let's keep reading. 16. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. And do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. Satan is always looking for an opportunity to destroy a Christian home. You've got to know that. Ladies, men, he's always looking for an opportunity to destroy a Christian home. Verse 17. I want to, like I said, let's keep reading. I know I'm moving fast, but I want to get through this today. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. This is cool here because this is, that word there, it's, it's an honorarium. It means generous pay. Okay? Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honorarium. In other words, be worthy of double generous pay, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Man, I tell you what, there's some backwards thinkers out there that, uh, especially in legalistic church circles, that think that the more you suffer, the holier you are. So the pastor should certainly never be paid. Maybe bring a chicken to his house or something like that, right? <laughs> I've encountered a lot of different things in this life, I tell you what. Um, Let's keep reading. Verse 18. For the scripture says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Hearkening to Deuteronomy 25, I don't have this in the machine, but you can just, if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 25, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Luke chapter 10 references. Okay. Verse 19. Do not receive. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Okay, Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. Be sure of the facts, church, when it comes to rebuking an elder or leader in your church. Be sure of the facts. Okay, because otherwise, you, if, you, if you think something of somebody, a leader in your church, and you talk and you gossip and you whisper around the back way, and then everybody's talking and accusations are flying, do everything openly. Bring it to the light, bring it to attention, but be sure of the facts before you levy an accusation against the leader, especially. And do, when you do, do everything openly. Paul is being clear here. Remember, this is a letter of disciplines for the church, for the family of God. Verse 21, I charge you before God, military commandment here. I charge you before God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the elect angels that observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing uh, with partiality. I charge you these things before God. Verse 22, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. What this is, church, is the laying on of hands is emblematic uh, of partnering in ministry. When you lay your hands, uh, that what this speaks to is like we're going to elevate somebody. So when we elevate somebody in the church into a, an official office, if we were going to take on a youth pastor or hire somebody, we, what we would do is we'd have a, an introduction service and we, the elders in the church, and, and we would lay hands on him and bless him before the people and, and show you know, our endorsement. So Paul's saying, don't do this hastily. Laying on hands indicates a partnership in ministry with somebody, so don't take that lightly. Be cautious in doing that, all right? Verse 23, no longer drink only water, Paul says to Timothy, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. So uh, obviously Timothy had some issues, some uh, physical issues, uh, perhaps stomach issues. Uh, we can only conjecture on what those infirmities were, but apparently a little wine for the stomach would help. You know, I find it interesting as we study throughout the Word of God, this issue of wine keeps coming up because in the legalistic church makes it an issue. The legalistic church has always somehow come up with the most bizarre theories on how, no, it was grape juice. It was grape juice in the Bible. Now, I, I know that some people have, have battled alcoholism and had 
alcoholism in their past and in their family and been subjected to horrible things because of it, I never advocate that anybody should drink alcohol, okay? But when we study the Word of God, we need to be real in what we're reading, okay? He's not talking about grape juice here. As a matter of fact, I have a graphic for you specifically dealing with this, uh, specifically dealing with the Feast of the Lord. At harvest times, there were three different harvest times in Israel. Uh, the first one, Passover. Can we see that graphic? The first harvest time was the barley harvest, and it came at Passover. The second harvest was a wheat harvest, and it came at Pentecost. And the third was at Tabernacles. We just studied that last week. This was the fruit harvest, and it happened at the end of the year, and it happened in October in our calendar. Okay, So that's when they made the wine at Tabernacle. So does anybody know, or made the grape juice? Okay, So let me just ask you a question. We won't spend too much time on this. If you make grape juice and you want to preserve it, how does grape juice preserve itself? It ferments, right? So what do you think happened to this grape juice that came at the fruit harvest? That was the only time they could make grape juice because they didn't have grapes until the fruit harvest. When you make the grape juice at the fruit harvest, by the time Passover rolls around, it was fermented. So the people love to say that when they take communion, that they, they were drinking grape juice, or that, it, and so many churches drink grape juice for that reason. It's a legalistic one. Uh, I support drinking grape juice uh, at uh, um, during communion uh, for those who have struggled with alcoholism. But it was wine; it was fermented grape juice. Uh, so. In many churches, I grew up uh, Lutheran, as I've said many times, and even as a young kid when I was like, what, 12 or 14 and got confirmed uh, before we left the Lutheran church, we'd have communion. And even as a kid, they'd be real wine and be like, bah, yuck, right? Anyway, verse 24, let's keep reading. Uh, some, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. So some judgments follow later. Some preceding them to judgment them, some follow later. Verse 25, likewise, likewise, last verse of the chapter, the good works of some are clearly evident and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Do you hear that? A lot of, a lot of, I mean, we moved through a lot of scripture right there. And I've got to tell you, there's a lot of bombs being dropped left and right that if you were to just to take any one of them and apply it to your life, that you, you could have some self-examining to do, right? Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident. Good works are clearly evident. And those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Works that are otherwise. So... Interestingly, we call it we call this First uh, Timothy chapter five, and we call it First Timothy chapter six. However, in the scroll, in the letter, Paul didn't write in chapters, okay, and he didn't even mark verses. He just was writing a letter as you would write a letter. So the scroll just keeps rolling into First Timothy chapter six, verse one. So let's read it. Let's keep rolling. Let as many. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Now this brings up an interesting issue. Bondservants, what is a bondservant? Well, I'll give it to you in this graphic. Can I see this graphic? This is what a bondservant is, and there's, we're not going to run away from it. We're not going to hide from it. This is really what it is. A bondservant, servant, is a slave. A slave. This applies to employment. You know, people think, oh my gosh, how awful there's slavery in the Bible, and does that make the Bible bad because slavery is bad? You have to realize that you're a slave. Did you realize that you're a slave to a certain degree? Don't you have to do things that you don't want to do to make money, to pay, your, pay for your house, pay for your... We're all a slave in some degree. But this really applies to slaves, to, to slaves in the Roman Empire. 50%, get this now, 50% of the Roman Empire was composed of slaves. Wow. Many more were educated and cultured, so they would educate their slaves even. Very different than the American uh, uh, issue of slavery. They educated their slaves, uh, but they were not treated as persons. They were not treated as persons, though. 
Now, there is an issue that was happening because that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people that were under the employee or slash ownership or indentured servitude or bond served servant tied to people, 50% of the empire. Now imagine we're spreading Christianity throughout the Roman empire here. Half the people that you're going to share the gospel with were slaves. So they had this newfound freedom in Christ, okay? And Paul's saying it should not to them, it should not be used. You have freedom in Christ, but it does not give you an excuse to, uh, to disobey or to defy authority. In the like, uh, any of you who have a boss at your job, right? Being having freedom in Christ does not permit you to tell off your boss and this and that. What will happen? You'll get fired or you'll get punished or you'll get written up. And that's not a good uh, that is not a good witness, okay? So many people would like to think, you know, that, well, Christianity is about freedom. Jesus doesn't want us to be slaves. We're no longer slaves, right? Amen. We sing it in songs. Then why doesn't, why, why is Paul walking around slaves, uh, telling slaves to be good slaves rather than telling them to run away or telling them to, you're free now. You should throw off the yoke of your master. No, because that would be a bad witness to the master because the ultimate goal is more important than our present sufferings. The ultimate goal, Paul wanted, Paul wanted, all right, we're getting, the, the slave is saved. The slave knows Jesus. Now we've got a real opportunity to get the slave owner saved because it's all about souls. It's, it's like I said, it's more about eternal, the eternal things than it is our present suffering in this life. And I know there's a lot of bad teaching out there that has get, got this, this best life now stuff ingrained down into the back of our minds. It's hard to dig out and scrape off sometimes. But that's the way it is, and that's what the Word of God teaches us. Okay, verse two, let's keep reading. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren. Believing, wow. As a matter of fact, so be a, your brother, your, your master is a brother in Christ. So you're on the same, you're on the same scale in the eyes of heaven, but not here on earth, okay? So serve them. Rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things, okay? So, man, if, you're, if you've got a master who's a brother, you're employed to him, whatever, you know, so then you do a better job for him because he's your brother, right? So they didn't speak out against institutional aspects of slavery. They didn't. You won't find it in the Word. This, why? Because this would have been disrupt, disruptive and it would have hindered the gospel. So... You know, well, you've got to be careful in picking your battles. Half of the empire were slaves, okay? Half the empire were slaves. Verse 3, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, okay? So he's saying constantly monitor what is being taught, okay? Constantly monitor what is being taught, because pride is often the badge of a false teacher, all right? He is proud. If he's proud, then he knows nothing. If he's, think the, apply this to a teacher, if he's proud, he knows nothing, but he's obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, and evil suspicions. Sound like anybody you know? Verse 5, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Whew, what a condemnation here. Now, this is the false teachers of today, guys. This is it. They're proud. They know nothing. They're obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They do it for the money. From such people, this is clear. Go back to verse, uh, the last verse 5. Withdraw yourself. From such people, withdraw yourself. Now, godliness with contentment is great 
gain contentment. That's your call. That's you're being called to arms here. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Can I see that graphic on contentment? This is important for us to get, guys, before we move on. All right? Let's see that. And inner sufficiency. What is contentment? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> An inner sufficiency that keeps peace in spite of your outward circumstances. Statistically, statistically, it is the wealthy people, not the poor, who go to the psychiatrist. Did you know that? And more are apt to attempt suicide. Wealthy people. You who are poor, you think, oh, if I only had the money, if I only had this, if I only had this. Oh, God, why don't you give me that? God, why can't I have that car? God, why can't I have that house? God, why? Statistically, you're in better shape. Wealthy people statistically uh, are more miserable. Verse 7, let's keep going. For we brought nothing into this world, we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out of it. Verse 7, nothing out of it. Verse 8, and having food and clothing, with these things we shall be content. Amen. Somebody say amen. Let's, are we typing? Are we talking back and forth, guys? Let's be noisy in this, in this chat room. I think I just dated myself by saying chat room. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, there's a, a famous Quaker invitation, famous Quaker invitation, and it goes like this. Can I see this picture? Let's see that graphic. Famous Quaker invitation. If, if ever, if ever thou dost need anything, come to me, come to see me, and I will tell thee how to get along without it. <laughs> nice. Henry David Thoreau uh, also reminded us that a man is wealthy in proportion to the number of things he can afford to do without. Right? Pretty cool. In other words, simplify your way to contentment. You can simplify your life, your expectations, what you think you need to have. Simplify your way to contentment. Let's jump back in verse 9. We're going to get this done today, guys. Are, is this a blessing? Is this a blessing? I'm telling you, there's just, there is one nugget after another here. No, by, Paul is just dropping bombs here. Pretty cool. Verse 9. But to those who desire to be rich, look at your neighbor. Is that you? Be honest. All right. But to those who desire to be rich... But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Mm -mm. Chuck Missler, who I've, I've, is, I've told you guys many times, I consider him my teacher. Right? I consider him a teacher and a mentor, and I've never met the guy. I just stand on his work and his word. He stood on Henry Halley's uh, work and, uh, and, and others. Um, good stuff, though. He, Chuck Missler said this. He said this. He said, some cross the finish line, sadly, only to discover that they have entered the wrong race. Don't let that be you, church. Don't let that be you. Don't get swept up into the lusts and everything that this world is giving you. The TV commercials are trying to tell you what you need to be happy. This kind of car, the kind of shoe, the kind of house, the kind of job, whatever it is, all right? Verse 10, Paul says it plain and he says it clear. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Underline that, many sorrows. Now people will say, oh, money's evil, money's evil, and that's the famous legalistic uh, you know, uh, mantra. But money is not, itself is not evil. Money is, is not evil. That's not what Paul said here. It is the coveting of money, the lust or obsession of money that is evil and leads to many, many sorrows, okay? Wealth is not a sin. I'll give you an example. Biblically, wealth is not a sin, okay? Can I see that graphic? I'm going to go through a few of them for you guys here, okay? Wealth is not a sin. Uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Also, Matthew chapter 6, 
Okay, that just means like, look, if your heart is in something, you're gonna, you're gonna spend your treasure there. Is your heart with Life Story Church? Well, I would imagine that you're spending your treasure there. You're helping build it. Are, do you love the Titans? You're probably buying tickets to the Titans and to, uh, you know, t-shirts and jerseys and stuff, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So you understand that. Wealth is not a sin. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 7. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 12. Abraham, David, Job, Solomon, they were all very wealthy. Money is a gift from God, according to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Believers should be willing. Here's the thing. Here's the crux, though. Believers should be willing to part with their money when God requires it. Okay, when does God require it? Let's look at this next graphic. Some real practical teaching for you guys today here, okay? When does he re require it? These are God's purposes for money, if you didn't know. I'm going to give you, I'm going to, this is a good package for you guys. Money can be such a confusing issue for people in the church today. God's purposes for money? Provision. First and foremost, pretty straightforward, right? For direction as well. God will often provide in the direction he wants you to go. For fellowship, it costs money to do things. It costs money to have church, right? It costs money to rent the community center. It costs money to put on events and all this stuff, right? For fellowship, God's purpose is for money. Uh, for de demonstration, God shows that he's blessing something, right? Uh, Four points. Four more points. Let's let's break these four. Let's break these four points down a little bit more for you guys. Okay. So God's perfect purpose for money is to provide for your basic needs, according to Matthew chapter six I just mentioned. Let me give it to you a little bit more clearly. Okay. This next graphic. To establish daily dependence on Him. Providing for basic needs, dependence on Him. To deepen our love for the Lord. Take screenshots of this, guys. Okay. Man, I would I would just. I would have it that every one of us at Life Story Church has a healthy understanding of money and God's point in, in giving it to you. To deepen our love for the Lord. The more we depend on Him, the more He provides. It deepens our love for Him. It's intended to develop a spirit of gratefulness when He does provide those things, when He does bless and bless exorbitantly, to teach us to live within our means as well, according to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, to help us enjoy our possessions as well, which is an interesting one, according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. It help gives us perspective on things. Point two was to confirm direction, right? Let's take a look at that. Let's get, dig a little deeper into point two. To build our faith and our vision. To build our faith and our vision. When, when we step out in faith and God meets us there, I'll tell you what, when we needed to move into the uh, middle school and we discovered that it was going to be twice as expensive at least to get from the, from the community center into the auditorium at the middle school, we had to take a step of faith because we didn't have the money. We didn't have the money to do that, but we knew that God was leading us there. So it, it was, the money was involved in a part of it. So we took a step of faith. It wasn't blind faith. It was because we know who he is because he's done this stuff with money with the church before. So we knew he was leading us there. So we stepped out in faith. We stepped out in faith and we, we never fell short of having what we needed. Okay? So... To build our faith. It certainly continued to build our faith and it certainly builds our vision. Let's go back to the graphic. It also, money is all, it also helps us determine who is the Lord of our life, confirms our direction. Who's the Lord of your life? You know, so are you being obedient with the money that he gave you in the first place? Are you being obedient with that and showing him and proving that he is the Lord of your life or not? It determines who really is the Lord of your life. Okay, where your treasure is, your heart, uh, your heart is right. So also to protect us from harmful things. Okay, to teach us patience as well, and so, so that we would concentrate. According to Philippians chapter three, verse seven through eight, concentrate on what true riches are. True, rich, true riches are not is not money in the bank. True rich, riches is your family, your kids, right, your church family. Jesus, relationship with Him, things that are eternal riches. Now you can bust your butt all your, all your life and, and acquire stuff and stuff and stuff and properties and all this stuff, right? And you can't take it with you, right? 
You can't take it with you. When it comes to riches biblically, the only thing that you can do is send your riches ahead, right? And that's by storing up treasure in heaven with your deeds, concentrating on true riches, okay? Uh, third point was to give to Christians, okay? God's purposes for money, three, to give to, to give to Christians. Let's look at that. It unites Christians, supports one another, okay? It demonstrates the mark of a Christian, okay? The generosity to initiate spontaneous thanksgiving as the needs are met, to multiply the potential for giving. The more you give, the more others are able to give. Giving always, not only does giving multiply uh, uh, resources in your own life, it multiplies in the life of a church as well. And lastly, he said, point four was that it illustrated God's power. Okay? Demonstration illustrated God's power. Previously was uh, fellowship to give to Christians. This is to demonstrate, to illustrate God's power, to cause Christians to trust Him. We need to trust Him. Money gives us the opportunity to do that. To mock the false God of our age as well. The God of our age wants us to be in love and lust with money and power. But, but the Lord blesses us, not this world, to purify our motives. It certainly purifies our motives, and it certainly brings non-Christians to salvation. The resources, the, this country, this nation, this great America is the world's leading exporter of charity. The largest exporter of charity in the history of the world. Don't tell me that that doesn't bring non-Christians to, uh, to salvation. How about Operation Shoebox that we've done every year for the last several years? Huh? Little children in the poorest parts of the world receiving the gospel due to the fact that God blessed the church with money. Right? Money is not evil. The love of money is evil. It's meant to glorify God was the last point on there. Uh, last point on this, uh, on this money uh, deal. Tithing. Tithing is an issue. This isn't a tithing sermon, but it falls into this topic, all right? Let me see that graphic. What is, what is tithing, church? You know, a lot of people think, well, I give to this and I give to that. You've got to understand that you're not giving until your tithe is met, all right? Uh, that is a clear, clear uh, instruction in the Word of God. You're not giving extra giving to anything until your tithe is met, because the tithe is His. The tithe isn't yours. The tithe is His. Then you give out of the abundance of your heart. Do you give charity and whatnot? This is God's direct challenge, according to Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 through 10. God says, you're not to test the Lord thy God, right? You're not to test Him, except in this one area. Malachi chapter 3, 8 through 10 says, Test me in this and see if I will not pour out blessings from the windows of heaven. Okay? This issue of tithing, it was instituted before the law. I think it's important to talk about this. There's also a lot of bad teaching that goes around about this that, uh, that says you don't have to tithe now. New Testament, you don't have to tithe. Ultimately, what that teaching does is it just robs you of potential blessing and happiness. And it, it inclines you more to hold on to your money, which, you know, I've always told, uh, Amber and I have always told our kids, you know, if you hold on to something too tightly, like your money, you know, imagine a, a, a pitcher pouring over your hand of sand, right? Nothing's, nothing can, if you grab the sand, you, you, the only sand you'll ever have in your hand is what you grabbed. All the rest of it pours around your hand, but if you have your hand open, it continues to pour into your palm and through your fingertips, right? It's a flow, but always filling the palm of your hand. So this issue of tithing was instituted before the law. And we see it in Genesis chapter 14, uh, verse 20. We see it with Melchizedek. Four reasons for tithing. Go back to that graphic if we could. It acknowledges the Creator's rights. The tenth of all is His. It is the antidote for greed. You struggle with greed, tithe. The antidote for covetous, uh, covetousness. Covetousness. <laughs> all right. Uh, it is the test of our faith. It is the solution to every financial 
problem that you have. And lastly, one more graphic on this. There's a pattern for it in the Old Testament. Take a screenshot. Don't, you guys, don't take my word for any of this stuff. I want you to use this as a jumping off point, all right? Old Testament pattern for tithing is there, Genesis 28, Leviticus 27. You see the, you see the references there. Uh, the, the, the New Testament confirms this as Christ does not set, uh, set things aside, he says in Matthew 23, verse 23. He's not come to do away with anything. That means he didn't do away with the tithe. It, implied, it is implied in the even so, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, the lay him in store, 1 Corinthians 16, and it's alluded to uh, that verse in 1 Corinthians 16 alludes to Malachi 3.10 and so on and so forth. So take a screenshot of that or write that down if you want to do more study on that, guys. So why money in this life? Can we sum that up? It defines and refines more than you know. It defines and refines more than you know, unless you know, right? All right, let's finish out this scripture. Uh, verse 11, and we'll close up here. But you, O man of God, high praise, <laughs> high praise from Paul to Timothy, man of God, who is referred throughout the scripture as man of God, Moses, Samuel, Elijah, David, Joseph, man of God. It's high praise. It's a high title. But you, man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness. In other words, pursue integrity. Pursue godliness. That's your speaking of character, your conduct. Pursue godly conduct. Pursue faith. That means dependability. <laughs> dependability. Love. That's agape. Pursue patience. That's perseverance. Perseverance. Pursue, persevere through it. Pursue gentleness. That's meekness. That's having power under control. Okay? Be under having your power under control. Gentleness. We must be known, church. Hear me on this. Can I see you real quick? Hear me on this. We must be known for what we are for. Not just what we're against. And that is so difficult in this time, in this age, with the hypocrisy, the lying, the politics that make you want to throw up. Can we be honest? Is anybody going to go to jail at any point, right? It's so hard not to just be known for what we're against or who we're against. We need to be known for what we are for because that is what inspires people. All right? Be known for what you're passionate about. Be known for your passion for the Lord. All right? Verse 12. Let's keep reading. Fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. That word there, fight, is the word agony. I love that. It means struggle, straining to win. In 2 Timothy, uh, Paul will famously say, I have fought the good fight, right? But this is fight the good fight. Agony, struggle, straining to win of faith. It's a struggle to win. The, the fight of faith, the agony of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Have you done that in front of many witnesses? You need to do that, church. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep, verse 14, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he himself, verse 15, will manifest in his own time. When's he coming? When is Jesus coming back? When's he coming? In his own time. I wish I could tell you more, but I think it's soon. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, verse 16, who alone has immortality. Oh, he's just going off. On, he's worshiping. You can feel he's worshiping in his words here. He who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches because it could be gone like that buddy hasn't the coronavirus stuff taught us that nor to trust in uncertain riches but in the living god who gives us richly all things to enjoy one of the greatest dangers of wealth is that it tends to make one proud then when, when that happens, one neither understands himself 
nor his wealth and the God's purpose for it. We are only stewards. However rich or poor you are, we are only stewards of the blessings that we have. As parents, what is the biggest blessing in your life? Your children, right? Yet, still, you are only a steward. You have a responsibility to lead them to Jesus. They ultimately belong to Him. Everything belongs to Him. Your car belongs to Him. You're be a good steward of the blessing. Mm, we're stewards in this life, not owners, right? You think you own your property, your land? That's, did you make that land? You didn't make that land, right? <laughs> Many times throughout history, governments change. A government can take your land like that, right? Verse 18, let them do good. We're almost done here, guys. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give. Let that be you, church. Willing to share. Verse 19. Man, I hope my kids are watching this. Verse 19, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Trust God, not wealth. The pursuit of wealth is often... It's often evidence that somebody's insecure. Pursuit of wealth, I mean, it's, look, it, it, people say money won't make you happy, but it helps, right? Sure, but if that's all you're about, it's a sign of insecurity because you're trying to, you're trying to secure yourself, but God is the only one who offers us, uh, offers us truly any security in this life. Uh, verse 20 through 21, let's close it out. Oh, Timothy. Oh, Timothy, you feel his heart here. Guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. When there's a lot of that out there. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Paul was probably referring to the Gnostic cults that claimed special spiritual knowledge. and Those teachings are alive and well in the church today. People saying you can have a special insight or be closer to God, have a special knowledge or special gift or a special uh, you know, operation in the spirit that others can't and that if you'll be good enough and if you'll, or, or if you'll press in deep enough that... Mm, mm, that's just not good doctrine, all right? And it's Gnostic in origin. So let's close this up, guys, shall we? Creed versus conduct. Let's start there. What do you have in your life that needs to be dealt with? What you believe versus what you do. You need to deal with it. We need to deal with it. What are you compromising it? What are you compromising, how about this, for a man or a girl? What are you, comprom what are you compromising of your ethos, your creed, what are you compromising in conduct going against your beliefs, who you are, what you believe is true? What are you compromising for a woman or for a man or a relationship? What are you holding on to too tightly? How about that? Do you get this? Oh, man, this word is so rich. What are you holding on to too tightly in your life? Is it money? I don't know. What race? How about this? What race are you really running? What race are you really running? Mm. Because it's so important that you answer these questions for yourself because your issues that you have, they're my issues too. Because we're family, you understand. And those issues that you have creates a void of intimacy. And let, let's not let there be any daylight between us as much as it's up to us. Okay? Your issues are family issues. What are you bringing into the family? What is Paul outlined here? And you're like, oh, somebody's reading my mail, as they say, right? What do you need to take care of? What do you need to... What areas do you need to be more disciplined? Hmm? We don't reject you, but you have to let us help you in these areas. That's what family is for. Amen? Let me see that quote one more time. And let's end on this poignant note. Some cross the finish line only to discover that they have entered the wrong race. Don't let that be you, church. With every eye closed and every head bowed, 
If you're here this morning and the Holy Spirit's moving on your heart, perhaps bringing conviction or bringing you to a saving faith for the first time, who knows? Whatever it is, I want you to stand right where you are and I want you to lift up your hands. Stand or kneel, whatever it is. I want you to do something physically because when we do something physically, it does something to us emotionally. When you, I want you to change your position somehow. I want you to lift your heart and your head if you can't lift anything else. Close your eyes. Lift your heart to the King of Kings and say this to him. Say, Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is true. I thank you for how faithful you are, Lord Jesus. Even when I am not faithful, God, even when my conduct violates my creed, God, I, I, I hear you this morning loud and clear, Lord Jesus, and I know what I need to bring into alignment with, with the word of God in my life. Lord, help me do that. Help me do that. Give me the strength and the wisdom, Father, to change my circumstances, to set myself up for success. Lord, I don't, I'm tired of setting myself up for failure, Father. I'm tired of giving Satan a platform from which to launch an assault on me and my family and my life. Lord Jesus, let the attacks no longer come from the platform that I give the enemy, Lord Jesus. Lord, with all my heart, I want to walk after you. I want to pursue you. I want to pursue godliness. I want to pursue everything that the Holy Spirit has spoken to me this morning through Paul in his letter to Timothy. Oh, Lord, you are the great enabler, Father. Thank you for meeting all of my needs. I believe that you do. And I give them to you. And I ask that you'd meet them. And in and, and asking, I know that you already have. So, Lord Jesus, come on now, say this with me, church. If you're, if you're saying a, re, a recommittal as well, just, just so let's speak this. Lord Jesus, I believe that you're God and I believe that you love me. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. Now come into my heart and make me new. Lord Jesus, I lay it all at your feet. I surrender all I am. I pray that you would put your desires in my heart, your things that you desire for my life into my heart, Father, as you seal it with the promised Holy Spirit, a guarantee of an eternal inheritance, Lord Jesus. I thank you for who you are. Thank you, thank you, thank you. My heart overflows with gratitude this morning. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe you rose from the dead on the third day. And because you live, I live, Lord Jesus. Give me victory over Satan and the attacks of the enemy, Father, and the sin that I have fallen uh, victim to and fallen for too often, Lord Jesus. Grow me, sanctify me, set me apart for a higher, uncommon use and good. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen, church. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he pour his favor out on your lives. May he be near you. May, may the presence of Jesus be in every room you walk into. Let him walk with you, Lord. Oh, church, may you prosper in all you do. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. We love you guys, and we will see you Wednesday night at 7 p.m., if not before. We love you guys. Thanks.